think I have to follow that. That's fun. Um, we have been talking about intentional disciple making as opposed to haphazard disciple making, as opposed to not disciple making. Um, we, and I'm, I'm going to read a letter that I wrote to the elders on the January 1, 2020. It's one of those things I'd totally forgotten about. I'll do it later, but I want to I just talk about, we've been just going through this whole idea of what is discipleship, and what is disciple making, and what is a disciple, and why am I talking about it? Because it's the last assignment we were given, and it's interesting, he didn't, Jesus didn't tell us to go into all the world and build churches. He didn't go into, all, go into all the world and have prayer meetings or have music. And I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying that's not what he told us to do. What he told us to do is go into all the world and make disciples. And the fact of the matter is uh, we've made converts more often than we have disciples, which is one of the main reasons a lot of the world loves to judge the church because they can't find anybody that actually looks like Jesus and the whole point of discipleship is to make us all end up looking a lot like Jesus in other words there needs to be a lot of identity confusion out there they need to look at you and go you seem like maybe I've met Jesus now, if that sounds almost sacrilegious, you hadn't been reading the New Testament. Because we're going to examine intentional discipleship, the chosen. How many of you have watched the chosen? If you haven't watched the chosen, it is a new, trust me, it is so much better than all those old Jesus movies where Jesus kind of looks a little anemic and I don't know, just a whole, you know. Jesus, my boyfriend, kind of, you know, that, that whole thing. I had that picture in my church, you know, my Methodist church I grew up in. There was, there was Jesus, I, I called it Jesus, my boyfriend uh, picture. I'm sure all, all the old ladies loved it. But anyway, I couldn't identify with it. I, I was looking for a broken nose. And this guy looks a little more like that. I want to read you the statement from Dallas Willard, who is a uh, professor and chair of philosophy at the University of Southern California. He's also quite a disciple of Jesus and a disciple maker. And here's what he said. For churches to become disciple-making churches, modification of time-hardened practices will also be required. Radical changes in what we do in the way of church will have to be made. All right. Let me read you out of the Message Bible, uh, one of the parables of Jesus as he was talking to the Pharisees in Matthew. And there's several chapters where Jesus is excoriating religious people and he's teaching them a lot. And most of us uh, can sometimes fall into that category. 
uh, not always, but sometimes we get our, we, we put on our self-righteousness, which means we quit identifying with those who don't know the Lord. Jesus responded by telling still more stories. And by the way, this is, and, I, and you don't have to look it up. I want you to listen. I know we're all educated here, but let's listen. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Jesus responded by telling still more stories. God's kingdom, he said, is like a king who threw a wedding banquet for his son. He sent out servants to call in all the invited guests, and they wouldn't come. He sent another round of servants, instructing them to tell the guests, Look, everything is on the table. The prime rib is ready for carving. Come to the feast. They only shrugged their shoulders and went off. One to Weedy's garden, another to work in his shop, the rest with nothing better to do. Beat up the, and, and some of them beat up the messengers and then killed them. The king was outraged and sent his soldiers to destroy those thugs and level their city. Then he told his servants, We have a wedding banquet all prepared but no guests. The ones I invited weren't up to it. Go out into the busiest intersections in town and invite anyone you find to the banquet. The servants went out on the streets and rounded up everyone they laid eyes on. Good, bad, regardless. And so the banquet was on. Every place was filled. When the king entered and looked over the scene, he spotted a man who wasn't properly dressed. He said to him, Friend, how dare you come in here looking like that? The man was speechless. Then the, cult, the king told his servant, Get out of here, fast, time up, and ship him to hell. And make sure he doesn't get back in. That's what I mean when I say, Many get invited, but only a few make it. Now, many of you have heard that verse said this way. Many are called, but few are chosen. I like the way uh, Dr. Peterson put it. Many get invited, but only a few make it. Today, I want to talk about just one aspect that is critically important. And I'm not, it's not so much a theological position because people take this and make it a real theological debate. And the part of the reason church people debate theology is they're not doing it. If we were out there inviting people, we wouldn't be confused about what inviting and choosing and being chosen is all about. But because we're not, we get real confused and we debate the sovereignty of God and election and all these kind of doctrines that frankly aren't that complicated and Jesus didn't make them complicated. As we think about the idea of church, I want to quote Mike Brin who's a pastor out of England. He says, if we make disciples, you will always get the church. But if you start churches, you may not get disciples. 
I think that's really something that we must never lose out of the... I'm not going to lose it. As I've said, my primary role is not to even be up here and preach, even though it's a part of my assignment. My role here is to make disciples. If we do one thing in this church is to make disciples of Jesus. So let's talk about the idea of making disciples and do it and choosing. What is many are invited, but a lot of them don't show up. That's how a Calvinist Presbyterian translated it. In other words, what he said is, it's pretty much up to you. If you don't respond, you can't get picked. So let's talk about choosing sides. How many of you hated that part of team sports when you were little? And we'd have 20 of you, and the, the two best athletes always got picked to pick the rest of the team, right? That was generally, the, or two of the older kids would be the ones. And the first person picked you knew was going to be so-and-so because they were the, maybe the best athlete of all. And those last three or four people they always were kind of like, they were wearing the collar of shame and, you know, they were feeling really low. Well, here's the interesting thing about Jesus. That's not the way he picked disciples. But let's talk first about how he picked disciples. And the first part that I observe, because I have been studying the, I've been pouring over the New Testament. I'm going, Lord Jesus, I don't think I really know how to make disciples. I think I, I thought I knew how to make disciples, but I am reevaluating how I make disciples. And I'm reevaluating everything there is to disciple making because I believe I have a lot still to learn. And so one of the things, in last week, in the last two weeks, part of our main verse has been John chapter 1, verses 35 through uh, 50, and it's the story in the book of John about how he and Andrew saw Jesus after the baptism, started following him, Jesus turned around and looked at him and said, what do you guys want? Kind of caught them off guard, and they were going, duh, uh, get up. Can we see where you live? And he said, come and see. But the point is, they started, they initiated, there was something on those guys. So they actually picked Jesus. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Not in every circumstance did people pick Jesus. Sometimes Jesus would pick them. I started noticing this pattern. But a lot of times there was people that were demonstrating something, a curiosity, a hunger, a humility to start following him, which is exactly the next two or three points of my 
is, how hungry are you? Blessed are the hungry, for they will be filled. They'll be satisfied. Here's something about spiritual hunger, though. And C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, and, and, he, and I can't remember which one of the C.S. Lewis stories it was, but he was talking about Turkish delight. And when you ate Turkish delight, and it was so satisfying, it was so sweet, it was so good, there was only one problem with it. It just made you want more. It was the, how do you stay filled and stay hungry? Well, that's the, that's the nature of the kingdom of God. When you eat of him, you just want more of him because he expands your capacity for hunger. And many, many people in the earth today have no spiritual hunger whatsoever. So the other morning, some young men I was, I'm discipling, and I'm trying to show them how I follow Jesus. I said, here's what we're going to do this morning. I don't normally do this in the morning, but I do this often. And I said, I pulled out my phone. I said, see that? And I go, yeah, those are notes. I said, what are those? Those are names. Where did I get these names? I have no idea. Can you tell me? Yes, I will tell you. I got those off of the Wake County IMAPs because those are the names of everybody that lives around me. Because one of the things I pray for in my neighborhood on a weekly basis is that the people that I live around will develop a spiritual hunger for Jesus. Because I cannot overcome their indifference. Now, a sign and a wonder can overcome that. A love, a spoken word, a generosity, kindness, inviting them over to my house. There's all kinds of ways that spiritual hunger can be intensified. But part of our job is to go as servants of the Lord and start creating hunger everywhere we go. That's what disciples do. And disciple makers make hungry making disciple makers. <laughs> so, I'm a, by the way, what is disciple making? Can anybody, did anybody bring their notes from last week? We have a definition. Like I said, you can't define, LeBron James is not a football player. We need to know how to make a football player, using that analogy. We need to know how to make a disciple. Let me just read it in case you weren't here last week. Disciple making is the intentional process of training believers to be devoted followers of Jesus who through accountable relationships increasingly resemble Jesus and reproduce other disciples. Here's the thing about hunger. Hunger, spiritual hunger particularly, always is accompanied by humility. Which is one of the reasons, just because you meet somebody that has a completely whacked out religious perspective doesn't mean they're not hungry. And you need to be able to discern real hunger from sophistry. 
and posing. And there are those who truly are seekers. There are those who have a, seek, have a seeking heart. There are many who you don't know it yet, but somebody, a Sunday school teacher 65 years earlier sowed a seed that is now ready for you to reap in their life. You've got neighbors all around you with seeds in their life. And if, they're, if they don't, you have to be the one to plant them. <coughs> I actually was going to talk a lot about this later, but I just feel a sense of the Spirit on this because I just believe there's a harvest out there. Jesus said, look, guys, you don't get it. The, the harvest is white. You're right here in Samaria. You're looking, man, this is hard. We don't even like Samaritans. They're a bunch of half-breed they're, they've got syncretistic religion. They're not even pure Jews. They were just full of self-righteous judgment of these Samaritans. And Jesus had just won the most notorious one of them over to him by having a conversation about his need, which really was about her need. Because Jesus is never self-referential. And that's part of our problem. We've got to get over ourselves and quit thinking about how we appear and feel and look and how, what they'll think. Of. I mean, you know, my neighbor's going to think they're crazy. They probably already do. <laughs> so just, you know, embrace it. So who's qualified to be a disciple? Well, the humble, the hungry, the curious. And those who get easily distracted from their surroundings about Jesus. Somebody that actually, when you wave Jesus in front of them, they, they want to know more. These are all great signs. Argument is sometimes one of the best ways to go, oh, I've got somebody, i got a hook, i got somebody on the hook. That's what Jesus said to, to Peter. He said, look, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to make you a fisher of human beings. This is a whole different story, but I think it's worth repeating. Jesus has already met, because of chapter 1 in John, we already know that Jesus has met Andrew and Peter and James and John and Nathaniel and Philip because that's all recorded and that is right after he's baptized somewhere about four months later we realize that he he calls the disciples to follow him and and Peter and James and John are fishing at one of his sermons in other words they're they're like a lot of us they're kind of distracted because they've got their business on their mind but, you know, they really like the Galilean preacher, and they think he's got some really nifty things to say. And obviously, wow, they were impressed with him the first time they met him. And he, he says, Peter, let me borrow your boat. There's such a big crowd here. I'm going to get out on the water and preach back to them. And so Peter lets him. And then when he's through with the crowd, he looks over at Peter, who's probably a captive. You know, it's Jesus' way of getting a captive audience. Peter is having to, he and Andrew are having to listen to Jesus preach. And it's probably hitting their brain pan a little bit. 
but they're probably still thinking about what a horrible night of fishing they had the night before. I don't think they probably told Jesus, but maybe they had. But then he turns to him and says, Peter, I want you to uh, put your net out on the right side of the boat. He didn't say the starboard side. He said the right side. Literally, in the Greek, that's what it says. I think there was a reason he said the right side. Because I think fishermen knew what the starboard side was. And it says that he said, well, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. You're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. I know my stuff. But uh, it's your word. I'll do what you ask me to do. And, of course, the rest of the story is the nets were breaking. There were so many fish. And he did something that is a repeat in Peter's life. He gets stunned by Jesus. And Jesus, he, he says, I leave me, Lord, I am an evil man. Because I think what he did, did was two or three things in that moment. He identified Peter's wrong priorities. And that's when he said, Peter, follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. But who can be a disciple of Jesus? Let's, let's, let's go back to my main point here. How do you choose to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, I want to read you a little story. How many of you know who Bill Bowerman is? Anybody at all? Okay. Believe it or not, you're going to find out he's one of the most famous people in the United States. Not for his name, but for what he did. Uh, but Bill Bowen was the, the head coach at the University of Oregon track team. By the way, Bill Bowerman was a really fast sprinter as a college football player at the University of Oregon, but he was not a track coach. Bill Bowerman had this motto as he started to train athletes who were going to be on his track team. And here was his basic assumption. If you have a body, you are an athlete. Bill Bowerman was the coach up in a part of the world that was not known for great athletes. Lumberjacks, yes, but not great athletes. Let me just read you his results. He trained 33 Olympic athletes, 51 All-Americans, 12 American record holders, 24 NCAA champions, 16 under four-minute milers, and during his 24 years as a coach of the Ducks, his squad had only one losing season, and he, four, and he won four NCAA national titles. If you have a body, you are an athlete. In the days when Jesus started calling disciples, let me tell you how the Pharisees, the rabbis of their day, called their disciples. Here's what they did. When they were somewhere after their bar mitzvah, somewhere around 13, 14, 15, young men at that time, it was only men, <coughs> would be invited by the rabbi and to become a disciple, an acolyte of his. And as they 
got older, they would spend more and more time with him. Those kids that he rejected would become fishermen and farmers and carpenters. Jesus loves the rejected. He specializes in them. The world is filled with a spirit of rejection right now. It's called cancel culture. We get to be the people that never reject anybody while telling them their stuff stinks. Which is so hard for them to understand sometimes. They get confused. Just keep your love on and never stop speaking the truth in love. Don't love to speak the truth. Speak the truth in love. Another thing Bill Bowerman used to say is there's no finish line. There is no finish. Now think about that. Every race a, a runner runs has a finish line, but Bill Bowerman said you've got to think different. There is no finish line. It's continuous improvement. And he had Olympian after Olympian from an obscure state that with a small population without a great deal of ability to recruit. The point is, Jesus, making disciples isn't about who you are. It's about who the disciple maker is. Now, you go, well, that's, that's really good, Steve. Jesus made those disciples, but what about me? Who's qualified to be a disciple maker? A disciple. Timothy, the things you've heard from me... In the presence of many witnesses, I'm not saying this in secret, you teach faithful people who will teach others also. You're taking notes. Making disciples makes the disciple maker. Making disciples makes the disciple maker. There is nothing like making a disciple for you to start getting your own spiritual act together. What was that verse? What was that verse? Oh, that verse, the Holy Spirit just brought it to me. Thank God for, I mean, Google does have some godly, you know, abilities. I use it all the time to get me, you know, to find Bible verses. I can't remember where the reference is. All of a sudden, you know, wait a minute, how do I get somebody set free from their habitual porn habit? Well, first of all, you got to get delivered from your own. And becoming a disciple maker makes you a better disciple. Almost, did you hear that language that Jesus said to Peter on his first day of followership? See, the first word Jesus gave to the disciples was come and see. And that was about a four-month process. You know what the next word he gave to the disciples? Come follow me. Come follow me means you start watching me like a hawk. Not just observe, not just uh, satisfy your curiosity. 
Now you're starting to be like me. You're going to start emulating and imitating me. I'm, that's what I'm summoning you to do. Can I just tell you one of the great consequences of becoming a disciple maker? It gets you off of the focus of your life and your issues and your depression and your, you know, daddy wounds and your mama wounds and all your other wounds and all your other self-absorbed attention and I'm kind of picking on people who refuse to look you don't have a right to stay wounded you have a right to be healed okay this is that real pastoral gifting I have <laughs> look Look, look, I, I never want to minimize somebody's pain, but I don't want to maximize it either because the cross solved it all. And we've got to start exercising some faith and quit. Well, you know, my mom said something ugly to me one time, and now I don't have a good self-image. Well, God said something about you, and you should listen to him more than you do your mom. Okay? There's that. Okay. All right. Intentional. So intentional proactive seeking by the disciples. If you feel like you don't have any spiritual hunger, you know what you can do? Examine all the areas of arrogance in your life. Because arrogance stops hunger. Self-sufficiency is the number one manifestation of arrogance. Now this is the one I want to get to. Intentional, non-manipulative summons by Jesus, the disciple maker. You know, one of the things that... Look, I've been raised in evangelical Christianity and the altar call... Some of you might not have been. That's okay. I can maybe manipulate your, emo your emotions to get you to come up here and give your heart to Jesus. But you know what? Jesus never seemed to do that with anybody. He just told you how tough it was going to be. I mean, if Jesus had put the sign out there, he'd go, come follow me and die. Anti-marketing. Jesus was not trying to sell anything. He was not a salesman. He didn't have a toothy grin. There was nothing inauthentic about him. And what he did with the people that decided to follow him changed the entire world. And what we want to make sure the lights are just right. And, you know, this all works I don't worry about any of that I mean let's use it but it doesn't make any of us disciples of Jesus making a decision that says I nothing in my life is more valuable than you many of us most of us think more about Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be balanced here. Just FYI. Because Jesus was often not very balanced. When you think more about your 
your job prospects than the church you're a part to be, supposed to be a part of, you probably have your kingdoms completely back backward. I'm serious. We're supposed to be on a journey with a band of people called disciples, and we're supposed to be following Jesus as hard as we can. And, quote, church is not an auxiliary to our, an enhancement, a self-improvement project, a place so I can get my kids so they won't be quite as pagan as I am. Look, I've, I've did some of that, so I'm, you know, I repented, though. Here's a real caution. Here's what a lot of people go, well, okay. And I hear this. I, it's interesting. I, I, I thought, you know, I want to hear, I want to hear some, somebody talk about making disciples. So I you know, found a few popular podcasters that are pretty famous. And I kept hearing something that was completely antithetical to the Bible. And what they were saying is, we're making disciples of Jesus, and, you know, we don't want them to look at us. And we, you know, it's not really about me, it's about Jesus. And how many of you think that sounds really sophisticated and spiritual? I, I, did, I mean, you know, I can, if I didn't know better, I'd buy that. Problem is, I keep reading the Bible, so let's read the Bible together. Come and follow me is an invitation to learn. Look what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Just listen. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you interesting Paul that's where that's why people read that and they go Paul sounds like an egomaniac no he was a disciple maker who wasn't a hypocrite and knew it listen to this Philippians three seventeen, brothers join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You know, I'm just going to extend an invitation. If you want to learn how to have a good marriage, come see Brendan and me. I had one of my best friends. I was in his wedding. Uh, we played college football football together he had he married his college sweetheart uh, after about 35 years of marriage they got divorced after a whole bunch of kids both being solid Christians he was at our house one day and he goes I am really because he was living with me he was coming to see he was spending time with me and he said, I, you and Brenda, I, I just am amazed how you guys never let anything go. It's almost like you guys are, it's not an argument, but there's constant negotiation going on. I go, well, that's, you know, people ask me, what's the key to a good marriage? Date nights? No, negotiation. 
constant. Everything's negotiated. That way, no resentments get built up. You keep a clean slate. Both of you know where you are. There's integrity in your relationship. There's a whole lot of other reasons that you have a good marriage, but that's part of it is we have to model this stuff, okay? We can't just talk about it. It's like I said the other day. How, how many of you... Uh, played basketball. Anybody here played basketball? Okay, we got a few basketball players. How many of them, there, there's a thing called chalk talks. They don't use chalkboards anymore, but when I was coming up, coaches used chalk talks, and they would put the X's and the O's, and they would draw the lines, and they would talk to the boys, and I was one of the boys, and I would, I would do this. I was staring faking him out like I was paying attention. I was totally only thinking about either if I was in a good focus mode, get, let's get out. Uh, oh, yeah, I was thinking about Brenda Baird, but if I wasn't thinking about Brenda Baird, I was thinking about getting out on the court and just doing it. Quit talking, coach. I just want to get out there and do it. How many of you have never been shown how to pray for your neighbors? Don't raise your hand. But I think a lot of people, I think these two young men, I, I showed them how to do it. By the way, just so you know, the very next day, my next door neighbor, who I've been praying for for years, I think about four years since he moved in, came up to me after I prayed. It was almost like the Lord goes, well, let's throw Stephen Nugget here. So I see my next door neighbor and he comes up to me and he says, and I, I always, I, every time I talk to my neighbors, I ask questions like Jesus did because I'm trying to, I'm, I'm wanting to provoke a, a response that's positive. And I said, so, and I know he loves to read. I said, what you reading? He kind of looks at me and goes, well, you're probably not going to believe this. He knows I'm an ex-developer contractor and now a pastor which he couldn't really understand at all why would you do that he said well i'm i'm a, my, my my girlfriend my living girlfriend which he didn't say but she my living girlfriend uh and i are reading matthew and i i knew right then and there i could blow it it's like the lord goes you want to blow this or you want to, you want to execute properly? I said, oh, I love Matthew. That's what I would say if he'd read, that's what I'd say if he'd read, told me about war and peace, even though I really don't love war and peace. But, I mean, I, I appreciate war and peace. I love Matthew. I said, oh, man, that's one of my favorites. He goes, Really? I go, oh, yeah, that, that, just, that just shows the Jewishness of Jesus. He goes, yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it's like almost reading the Old Testament. So we got into a discussion, and he goes, I, I said, would you be interested? Ask another question. I wasn't going to lead him in the sinner's prayer. He's my neighbor. I'm going to build a relationship with him. I said, look. 
can I send you some stuff that's real non-religious, but it helps you really understand, like the book of Matthew? I said, it's, it's really cartoon level, but it's college level. He goes, I'd love it. So I sent it to him. Now, my point is, everywhere we go, we start looking outside of ourselves because not only are we disciples, we're disciple makers. All right, let me read you a couple more. Oh, they fell off. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith, Hebrews 13, 7. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a pretty strong language. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. How many, how many of you heard any preaching against idleness lately? And not in accord with the traditions. There's that word traditions again. That you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we're not idle when we were with you. These weren't lazy preachers that didn't do anything. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day. That we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right. But to give you in ourselves an example to imitate for even when we were with you we would give you this command if anyone will not work let him not eat that's second thessalonians second corinthians 3 2 you are our epistle of Christ written in our hearts known and read by all men and clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us written not with pen and ink but by the Holy Spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone but on tablets of flesh that is of your heart you and I if we're the proper product of the church, will be so confusing to people, they will think they've met Jesus. We will be an apostolic letter to the world of what Jesus is supposed to be like. That's going to be our mission for the next couple of years. Let me read you this letter. I wrote to our elders. I said, next year, this was January 1 of 2020, I believe that the Father wants us to lay a deep abiding foundation of an authentic disciple-making culture in Antioch RDU. This will be a culture whose impact will reverberate for generations. None of us regards ourselves as a master disciple-maker. I personally feel like a novice. But I'm ambitious to learn more from Jesus. As I've prayed in the next year, the thing I keep hearing from the Lord is this. I want to move my church from being an informational culture to a formational culture. I'm pretty sure I don't know all that that means. Even those of us committed to Jesus' command to disciple all nations realize that the spiritual formation of disciples is a lost art in the church. 
Something I read during this season of seeking the Lord really brought this into laser focus. In early 1700s, Antonio Stradivari crafted the best-sounding violins ever produced in the history of the world. Only 500 of his priceless masterpieces remain. What's amazing is that many of those violins were probably not made by Stradivari himself, but his apprentices. What is even more amazing is that scientists and luthiers have analyzed every part of his craftsmanship. Yet no one has been able to replicate a Stradivari violin in the modern era. They've discovered exactly what the parts of his violins are made from, what the dimensions. They even know that egg yolk was used as part of the varnish. They had to figure all this out because Stradivari never wrote his method down. He had no models. He had no books. Nobody can study even his writings because he was illiterate. What Stradivari did do was to train apprentices who sat at his elbow every day, all day long. They sat with him and imitated him. They mimicked him. They understood the minor nuances of his methods and processes through imitation alone. They carefully watched every motion, every process, every sequence of their master and repeated it until they could copy Antonio perfectly. These protégés became craftsmen like Stradivari. You and I, according to Jesus, have an upgrade from Jesus. You know that verse where he says, it's better that I go away? Because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Look, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in miracles. We just heard about one. All of those are amazing. They're important. They're good. But the main purpose of the Holy Spirit in your life and my life is to make us like Jesus. And it's to make it so that when you are discipling somebody, you help them become like Jesus. You're not discipling them to make them like you. You're making them like you because you've become made like Jesus. Are you getting this? But yes, you need to be able to say, look, I, have a, I know how to have a good quiet time. I've overcome my anger problem. I know how to raise my kids. You want to learn how to raise your unruly kids? Go find somebody that has some kids that are not unruly. It's called humility. You got to get hungry. There's people out there that know a lot about how to follow Jesus in a way you don't. And you have to be hungry and humble. And that is what is the nature of being a disciple. My goal, as I said to the elders, is that when you are asked, anyone in Antioch, who are you discipling and who's discipling you, they could give you an answer. I, don't, I know we haven't achieved that. But that is our goal. And you go, well, you know, I'm, I've been a, I, I'm older than nearly anybody in here, and I am being discipled. There are people I'm accountable to. I got a phone call Friday afternoon it was an accountability question. Are you doing this and this and this? I gave a report. I gave the good report because I knew I was going to get a call. <laughs> I 
got my lazy butt out of the seat and started walking because I'm doing accountability on exercise. Because it's real easy in your 60s to quit exercising. You got all kinds of justifications and excuses. Father, I just pray that we would be a church that would say we want to be disciples and we want to make disciples. We want to be intentional about our discipleship. We want people to imitate us as we imitate you. Lord, I pray that you would change the DNA of this group of people. Lord, that we would continue to press in to become, becoming a chosen. Lord, that when the invitation comes, we show up and therefore are chosen. We choose you, Lord, so that you will pick us on your team. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all rise and uh, have at it, Nick. <laughs>